One of the most puzzling aspects in all of the Buddha's teachings is that teaching on the truth and the experience of selflessness, of anatta. It seems to go against our whole common sense notion of who we are and how we understand ourselves. When we speak of selflessness, so many different questions come to mind. And it's perhaps the most frequently asked question preface in all of Dharma history. If there's no self, who came to the retreat? (laughs) If there's no self, who's making effort? If there's no self, who suffers? Who gets enlightened? Who gets angry? Who, who is happy? If there's no self, who gets reborn or doesn't get reborn? You know, who has memories? All of these very basic questions that just come to mind when we start to consider this. Not only do these questions arise, But sometimes when people begin hearing of this notion of selflessness or emptiness of self, they get afraid. You know, imagining perhaps that somehow in the moment of this realization, we go poof. (laughs) And all of a sudden there's no one here. You know, we disappear like in a magician's trick. But the deep understanding of selflessness is really the great jewel of the Buddhist teachings. It transforms our understanding of who we are and it opens up the possibility for a genuine and deep freedom. So it's worth looking at and exploring and questioning and investigating how can we understand this, how can we realize it for ourselves. I think the foundation for understanding it, at least in the beginning, on a conceptual level, as a place to start, is through understanding the very nature of concepts. This becomes a handle for us, for for understanding uh, exactly what this notion or idea of self is. Most of you are probably familiar with the very famous parable in the Republic of Plato. It describes these people in a cave, and they're chained in such a way that they can only face the back wall of the cave. And behind them is a fire and a group of figures walking by, just engaged in all the activities of life. And because of the fire, and this procession of figures behind them, shadows are cast on the back wall. And for this row of people, this line of people who are chained in the cave, all they've ever known are the shadows. That's their perception of reality. That's their perception of what is true. They take the shadows to be real. Now with a lot of effort, somebody manages to loosen the chains, turn around, they say, oh, yeah, there's a fire, there's this procession of figures. These shadows are only the reflection of a reality, not the reality itself. And then with even further effort or determination or resolve, they free themselves completely and go out of the cave into sunlight, into freedom. Well, to a very large extent, we are living like those people in a cave looking at the shadows. Because to a very large extent, we are living in the world of concepts, taking the concepts that we've created to be real and not even realizing that they are concepts. So I'd like to mention a few of the ones that are very deeply conditioned in us. Of course, there are innumerable ones. Just to give you some idea of how pervasive this way of viewing the world is in our lives.
one basic concept is the concept of place. You know, the, that the earth is divided up into countries and nations and there are borders and that the borders actually mean something and people kill each other you know, over these borders. And yet, you know, those pictures that, that we've seen from space taken from the satellites, no borders. You know, that's been a mental creation which we've invested a lot in with a lot of attendant suffering. Just read a very wonderful but distressing book. It's called King Leopold's Ghost. And it's all about the history of the Belgian Congo, which was formed as a private estate of King Leopold. You know, it's like somehow he worked the politics in the early part, in the last part of uh, the last century, in the early part of this one, and created this huge domain as a private colony. It was his. And the immense, immense, immense amount of suffering, you know, that came in the exploitation. The book is quite amazing, and a lot of heroism about people uh, exposing, exposing this. It was quite startling. And to realize that it all revolved around a concept that lots of people and lots of governments colluded in. This this area, which is huge, I forget exactly, half the size of Western Europe, is mine. You know, very odd. And yet the, the world today is really divided up in similar ways because we're very attached to this concept. But perhaps even more relevant for us, um, one that tremendously influences our lives, and we've talked about briefly, is the concept of time. We really live our lives as if past, present, and future are realities. And we carry these realities around on our shoulders. They weigh us down. How much of your time here has been spent lost in the mind-created world of past, or the mind-created world of future? It wouldn't be surprising for 90% of the time, you know, some large, large amount. And we live in these mind-created worlds as if they're true, as if they're real. It's extremely instructive to look carefully into the nature of past and future and to see how we create these concepts. You know, we're going along, watching our breath, minding our own business, Certain thoughts come of memories, recollections, remembrances, and somehow we are deeply conditioned. And at, at this point, I think it's largely unconscious. Now, these thoughts come, we've created a concept past about these kinds of thoughts. We create a concept and then take that past and somehow throw it out behind us as if the past really exists back there, instead of seeing that our only experience of the past and the only way we could possibly experience the past is as a thought or a feeling, emotion in the present moment. That's where we're experiencing it. We do the same with the future. Have certain kinds of thoughts, planning, imagining, fantasizing. We create a concept, future, throw it out ahead of us as if the future is out there waiting for us. And yet the only way we will ever experience the reality of future is as a thought or experience in the present moment. Because that's where we are. 
St. Augustine had a great line about this. He said, if the past and future really exist, where are they? And yet we carry them as this huge burden. The concept that we've invested so much in as a reality weighs so heavily on us. We are burdened by our notion of the past. We're burdened by anticipation of the future. And yet in the moment, no matter what the particular thought is, a thought itself is very light. There's not much to it, no matter what the content of it is, because the nature of a thought is very light. So just to begin to see that we create concepts, ascribe a reality to them, live in the world of them, that's living in the world of shadows, because we're not seeing, we're not aware, yeah, this is just a concept, and it may be a useful one. I'm not at all suggesting that we don't use concepts, we do in there, but we don't want to forget what they really are. Concepts of place, of time, concepts of ownership, possessiveness. We have the idea that we possess things. Sometimes it's ridiculous, I mean, really ridiculous. I know people who got very, very upset when their area code changed. <laughs> We used to be 617 here. 617 was a great area code. <laughs> really a good one. And then it went to 508. Hmm. A little more bourgeois. <laughs> now it's 978, and it doesn't even have any ring to it at all. <laughs> That's one level of <laughs> possessiveness. Another level, how would you feel if some, you came into the hall and somebody was sitting in your place? I'll bet it would be pretty traumatic. You know, you'd have a feeling or two. <laughs> Where does that come from? You know, do we actually own our space? Does it belong to us? We've created a certain concept in our mind that it does. You know, and to the degree that we're attached to that concept, to that reality, we suffer. Many, many examples of this. Concepts of place, of time, of ownership. Concepts of self-image. We've each created for ourselves a certain persona, you know, that we present to ourselves and we present to the world, and this is how we are, and this self-image that we've created, it's like a box. Or a, The image that I like the best for self-image is, you know, the, when you were a kid, you used to have these plaster of Paris molds, you know, and you poured the plaster of Paris into this little rubber mold and it came out, whatever, a frog or an animal. Or, well, the self-image is like this mold. You know, and we pour ourselves into a mold of self-image and then wonder why we feel constricted or why we feel contracted or confined. It's because we have identified with a certain idea of ourselves, a certain concept of ourselves, and are really imprisoned by these ideas. Somebody who's a wonderful example of a being who cuts through concepts, both in his understanding and in his life, was the Zen hermit monk poet Ryokan. Actually, he had a wonderful uh, haiku poem about ownership you know, as a concept. At one point, he was just living, living very poorly, you know, in this little kind of desolate cabin up in the mountains, hardly any possessions at all, you know, just a few cooking pots and whatever. 
And then one day he came back to his hut and he found that everything had been stolen. And he wrote this little haiku poem. The moon at the window, the thief left it behind. <laughs> so just imagine going back to your apartment, to your house, after the retreat. Everything has been stolen. The moon at the window. <laughs> Unlikely, <laughs> because we have this idea that these things belong to us. Um, in terms of self-image, there are many stories. There's, there's a book on the life of Ryokan called, it's called The Great Fool. And a lot of the stories are just about his freedom of being and how he would just spend a good part of his days playing with the children I just want to read one, one little anecdote about Ryokan. When the Zen master went out, children would follow him. Sometimes they would shout at him loudly, and the master would shout back in surprise, throwing his hands, reeling backward, and almost losing his balance. Whenever the children found the master, they were always ready to do this. Ordinary people frowned on this behavior, my late father once questioned the master about it. The master, Ryokan, laughed and told him, When the children surprise me this way, it makes them happy. When the children are happy, it makes me happy. The children are happy and I'm happy too. Everyone is happy together, and so I do it all the time. There's no truer happiness than this. Nevertheless, at times Ryokan did become exhausted and would have to make his escape. The children liked to circle around him, clapping their hands and laughing with delight. When Ryokan tired of this, he lied down and pretended to be dead. <laughs> then when the children are no longer hemming him in, he slowly gets up and walks away. <laughs> it's a wonderful manifestation of enlightened behavior. <laughs> Just that playfulness and lightness and not being constrained by some image one has of how one is supposed to be, but it's, it's just spontaneous in the joy and the happiness, and the happiness of making others happy. So there's tremendous possibility for us if we can loosen you know, the mold of this concept of self-image. There are other concepts which may seem more innate, you know, that we, we hardly think of as a concept. Maybe things like age, you know, or race, or gender. How old is your breath? Your breath 40, 50, 60? What color is your mind? Black, white, yellow, red? Is the pain in your knee male or female? On a certain level of experience, these concepts don't make sense. We see that they're just constructs of one kind or another. Now we have to be a little careful here because I'm not suggesting that these differences don't exist and that the concepts at different times aren't useful. They do exist. We're all playing out particular conditions of our karmic circumstances and whatever. But the question is, are we playing them out from a place of wisdom and openness and freedom and lightness? Or are we playing it out from a place of delusion, of being trapped, of being identified, creating a sense of self in all of it? So we need to see what is really the construct of our minds and what is the nature of our actual experience moment to moment. The most deeply conditioned concept that we have, the one that has been most fully and deeply habituated in our lives, in our understanding, is the concept of self. We have created a notion of I, of me, of mine, of self, of 
whatever words you like. We've created this sense of someone standing behind experience to whom experience happens. And we, for the most part, do not see that that is a mental fabrication, that that is a mental construct. There's nothing in our actual experience that that points to. It's as if we've created a vantage point of identification with one thing or another. We call that vantage point self or I and then think, because we've created this concept about it, we think that this I, this self has some reality, has some intrinsic existence. And it's all an illusion. An illusion in the sense of being a construct of mind that we've created. As the awareness, as the observing power of the mind becomes stronger and steadier, we begin to discover that this self, this I, is not what we thought it to be. We begin to see very clearly that the self is not the body, it's not the changing sensations that we feel, the self is not the thoughts that arise, it's not the emotions that arise, it's not even awareness. Seeing that the notion of self or I is a mental fabrication comes really as a great surprise, but also it's a great relief. It was expressed, this relief was expressed most succinctly by a wonderful Sri Lankan monk. He said, no self, no problem. What does it mean, in experience, to talk of no self? I mean, maybe we can begin to get it somewhat on an intellectual level, to see that we have created this as a concept, just like all those other concepts of place, of time, of ownership, of self-image. The very notion of self is another creation. But how can we understand very accurately and incisively in our experience, how this happens. One of the things I'd like to begin going into tonight is to explore how we create this notion, this idea of self, and also how we can begin to free ourselves (coughs) from the illusion of it. So we need to start with a recognition of the nature of the mind. In its most basic function, the nature of the mind is knowing, it's cognizance. It's that which simply knows what's arising. When we look for it, there's nothing to find, because it's not an object, it's not a thing. This nature of knowing, this nature of cognizance, of awareness, we could call it empty, we could call it invisible, clear, lucid, unobstructed, vivid, flawless. I mean, all of these are concepts, are words, describing the experience of this nature of awareness, the nature of mind, which is knowing. But as we use the term mind here, it's also more than just knowing. Because in every moment of experience, different qualities of mind also arise along with the knowing. And in Buddhist Abhidhamma terminology, these qualities are called mental factors. They're just different qualities of mind, each functioning in their own way. Greed, hatred, 
anger, joy, love, happiness, concentration, mindfulness, delusion, wisdom. There's a long list of these different mental qualities. Greed has the nature to stick to the object. Aversion has the nature to condemn the object. Mindfulness has the nature to not forget the object. Concentration has the nature to be steady on the object. Each of these mental factors simply functions in its own particular way. Some are wholesome, which means pragmatically that they're the cause of happiness. Some are unwholesome, which again, very pragmatically and experientially means they cause suffering. Now there's one particular mental factor which when it's out of balance keeps us imprisoned in the concept of self, of I. And so it becomes very important, at least on some level, to understand how this factor is working. Because this is the source of this illusion that we're living in. This particular mental factor is called perception. And perception, again in Abhidhamma terms, is a common factor which means that it's always arising. Now some of them just arise sometimes and not others. The common factors are always arising in every moment. So perception is one of these. Now what's its function? The function of perception is to pick out the distinguishing marks of an experience so we can recognize it. It creates a concept or a name for that experience and it stores it in memory. All of this is perception. It recognizes the particulars of an experience, man, woman, house, car, tree, everything. Everything that we're perceiving in ourselves and in the world this quality of recognition, oh, that's what it is. It distinguishes it from anything else. It names it, and this is a very important piece. Names it, creates the concept, and then stores it in memory for future reference. When perception is in balance with mindfulness, then everything works fine. Because the perception, the recognition, frames the experience so that we can investigate it more deeply. In this respect, the whole tool of mental noting is the development of perception in the service of mindfulness. What are we doing? We're recognizing each object as it comes, so we recognize it clearly. In, out, heat, hearing, thinking, whatever it is. It's like we're framing the experience with this perception, with this note, with this label, with this name, for the purpose of seeing more deeply into it. So in this regard, perception is in the service of mindfulness, in the service of wisdom. But, the other side, when mindfulness is not strong, when perception overshadows mindfulness, what happens is, and this is our more usual state of affairs, what happens is that perception recognizes the surface appearance of an experience, puts a name on it, Again, man, woman, tree, house, road, whatever. We get a general impression of it, we recognize it, we put a name on it, we solidify our perception with that concept. And then we're limited by that concept which we've created. When the perception is stronger, than the mindfulness. It's no longer setting us up to look deeply, rather it's covering the experience with a name. I'd like to read you a poem all about this by a Polish woman who 
couple of years ago won the Nobel Prize for Literature, for Poetry, I probably will not say her name right, but as best I can do, Wislawa Simborska. And her, her poetry is quite amazing. Of course, it's all in translation, and probably in Polish it's even more wonderful. But she has a very clear view of things. So the name of this poem is View with a Grain of Sand. We call it a grain of sand, but it calls itself neither grain nor sand. It does just fine without a name. Whether general, particular, permanent, passing, incorrect, or apt, our glance, our touch, mean nothing to it. It doesn't feel itself seen and touched, and that it fell on the windowsill, and that it fell on the windowsill is only our experience, not its. For it, it is no different from falling on anything else, and with no assurance that it has finished falling, or that it is falling still. Okay, this next stanza is the whole practice. So, the window has a wonderful view of a lake, but the view doesn't view itself. It exists in this world colorless, shapeless, soundless, odorless, and painless. The window has a wonderful view of a lake, but the view doesn't view itself. Colorless, shapeless, soundless, odorless, painless. The lake's floor exists floorlessly, and its shore exists shorelessly. Its water feels itself neither wet nor dry, and its waves to themselves are neither singular or plural. They splash deaf to their own noise on pebbles neither large nor small. And all this beneath a sky by nature skyless, in which the sun sets without setting at all, and hides without hiding behind an unminding cloud. The wind ruffles it, its only reason being that it blows. A second passes, a second second, a third. But there are three seconds only for us. Time has passed like a courier with urgent news, but that's just our simile. The character of time is invented. His haste is make-believe, his news inhuman. It's a wonderful deconstruction of the world of concepts and how much we view the world through the lens of concepts and take the concepts to be real as if they're pointing to these things existent in themselves. We're living in this cave of shadows because we're not noticing this particular function of the mind. To bring it down to sort of a very personal experience in the world, we can see how we solidify our sense of things, our sense of other people, through our concepts about them. Have any of you experienced any judgments in your mind? <laughs> Right. <laughs> Unlikely. <laughs> What's happening? We have a perception of somebody. It's like we create this image of them. We may not even know them. Yeah, but it doesn't stop us. <laughs> From we have a certain perception, a certain recognition. We create a concept. They're like this, they're like that. We can have all kinds of judgments about the concepts which we've created. And then this person is just in a little box, you know, of our own making. And every time we see them, we're relating to them as if they're the ones living in that box, not seeing that we're the ones who built the box. And it really keeps us just from being fresh, from being new, 
with each person, each time. Metta is a wonderful practice in this regard because, as probably has been mentioned, one of the great instructions for metta, especially with people that we have a lot of negative judgments about, for whatever reason, now the instruction is, well, find some good quality, even if you have to look really hard. And you just find this sliver of goodness in them. And you start relating to that element of their goodness. And it's quite amazing how, if we can do this, and sometimes it takes a little time and can be difficult, but as we do it, we see that our relationship to that person has changed. Because we're getting out of the box of our concept about who this person is and how they are. And we're just seeing them in a fuller way. And it doesn't mean to imply that we don't see all the rest. It doesn't mean a denial of anything. It just means that our minds are open, they're fresh, they're relating to the whole, to the changing whole of each person. When we don't observe carefully, there's one habitual perception, concept, that is the cause of tremendous misperception of what's true. Becomes the cause of many inaccurate conclusions about ourselves and the world. It's a very fundamental perception which most of us share. It's really the perception which keeps us from understanding what is true. And that is the perception we have of the solidity of things. Mostly we're living our lives in the understanding, in the perception that things ourselves, others, objects, the world, is made up of solid, discrete things. And as long as we are fixated or lost in this level of perception, it becomes impossible to see the ultimate, the more ultimate, momentary, changing, insubstantial nature. So the question might arise, why do we have this perception of solidity since we all share it? There must be some evidence for it. Again, when we examine it carefully, we see the reason we see things as being solid is because of the rapidity of change. Things are changing so rapidly that it looks unbroken. You know, if you, if you whirled a fire around in a circle quickly, all we would see would be a ring or a wheel of fire. We wouldn't see the movement. Or when you go to the movies, do you see the separate frames of film? No. It's going too quickly for us to perceive that, and so what we see are the shadows on the wall of the cave. Right? We're seduced by the movie thinking, yeah, on some level, getting lost in that as being the reality, because we're not tuning in to the rapidity of the changing nature. Well, we do that a lot with ourselves. We're not seeing the changing nature of this mind-body process. And so we take it to be solid, substantial. Another reason that we believe and base our lives on the solidity of things is because for the most part, we don't look closely enough we're viewing things from a distance. Now, when you step outside during the daytime and you look into the distance, from a distance we see a mass of color. If you came closer, you would see that that mass of color are really separate trees. If you came closer still, you would see all the different parts of the trees. You know, the trunk and the branches and the leaves. And if you look even closer, you get into the bark and the little aspect. You go deeper, 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 deeper with closer and closer observation. The whole notion of tree disappears. 
tree is a concept and a useful one, but still a concept based on a certain level of observation. The whole notion of solidity is simply a perspective from a certain level of attentiveness. It's not that things are solid in themselves. I'm not really very scientifically oriented. And I always get pick up these science books of you know the Dharma and physics and the Dharma and quantum reality and thinking I'll get into it. But it always seems just a little beyond <laughs> my mind. But every once in a while there are just these little little facts <laughs> which startle me. Well one of these I in one of the books that I was attempting to read on quantum reality, uh, it was just this one sentence in the whole book that kind of stood out and I remembered. It said that this was all about size and dimension. That the level on which quantum realities are happening, you know, all those whatever they are, quarks and quirks and (laughs) all of that stuff. That the level on which that is happening is to the size of a sugar cube as a sugar cube is to the entire observable universe. I couldn't believe that one. I mean, this kind of level of fundamental, you know, at least in the domain of physics, fundamental realities that comprise what we call at least our physical being. <laughs> that the dimensions of the entire physical universe are within us. And isn't that amazing? the whole notion of this as being some solid thing and this is who I am, what does that even mean in that context? But again, because we haven't trained our perception to look deeply and closely and whether or not we get to the quantum level, I don't know, but we definitely in the practice can get much deeper than this super superficial level of perception that we're normally living in. You know, of body, of head, of shoulders, of back, of legs, of knee. All of these are concepts. Just for a moment, we'll do a little exercise. You know, probably you go up to anybody, anywhere. Do you have hands? Do you have fingers? Of course. Okay, this is this is gonna revolutionize your thinking. (laughs) Just for a moment, if you would hold your hands together, you know, with your fingers pressing, and close your eyes, and really be with your experience of those sensations. Just the sensations. Maybe the tingling or the slight pressure. Just really rest just in the awareness of those sensations. Are there any fingers? Are there any hands? No, finger hand is a concept. It's an image that we have created based on form, based on sight, based on certain sensations. But this is the reality that we're actually experiencing. On the level of sensation, we see that everything is changing. On the level of concept, everything is fixed. Hand today, hand tomorrow, hand yesterday. This must be me. On the level of sensation, we see moment after moment after moment, kind of vibration and changing, it's an energy field, nothing lasts long enough to be called self, to be called I. 
The whole notion of self is a concept that we've created. Okay, now we're coming to the great denouement of all of this. <laughs> this is all hopefully leading up to something. So what the Buddha describes, through a more careful observation, instead of resting simply in the superficial perception of things, you know, where we get caught in the names and caught in the concepts, he looked very deeply into the actual nature of our experience, and he described it in a very simple way, in terms of uh, the five aggregates. Has anybody talked about, and this is a very basic Buddhist teaching, I'm sure over the next weeks, different ones of us will. Basically, the Buddha just analyzed the moments of experience into what was actually happening. And he said, there's the aggregate or the component of physical matter, of sensations, physical sensations. We all know what they are. There's the aggregate of feeling, which means they're pleasant or unpleasant, the quality of pleasantness or unpleasantness, or neutrality. I'll just back up a minute. In these five aggregates, the one is physical, material elements, and the other four are mental, or elements of mind. So you have a framework. So the aggregate of form, of matter, and then of the mental aggregates, there's feeling, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. There's perception, which is this mental faculty of recognition, which I've talked a lot about. There's the aggregate of what's called formations, which are all the different reactions. So we have all the different mental factors other than feeling and perception. You know, so anger, love, concentration, mindfulness, wisdom, all of our other mental tendencies are in this fourth aggregate. And the fifth one is consciousness, knowing. And so when we begin to look at our experience of what we're calling self, of what we're calling I, we see that it's really just made up of these aggregates in constant change. Part of my training in Asia, and this is a common Asian phenomenon, is talks that go on for hours and hours and hours. <laughs> I had one teacher who started a talk at four in the afternoon and didn't stop till 10 at night. He just was talking till the last person had left. <laughs> so people were kind of flaking out. <laughs> but his enthusiasm for the Dharma was so... <laughs> but I'm very conditioned to not do that. Anyway. in terms of understanding how the notion of self is created from a misperception of these aggregates, this is a story of one of the great nuns of the Buddhist time, uh, Vajira. And she was sitting, and there's just a little, a little sutta here. Uh, she was sitting in this town, went up and took a bowl, and uh, went and sat under a tree. And then Mara, you know, the personification of illusion, came and was kind of testing her, he said, by whom is this self, this being created? Where is the maker of this self? How does this being arise? How does this being cease? And then this occurred to the nun Vajra, who could this be, human or otherworldly being, addressing me with a verse? This must be Mara, the evil one, wanting to arouse fear, trembling and dread in me, and wanting me to fall away from concentration. So the nun Vajra knew this was Mara, and she addressed him back with a verse. The translations sometimes are a little different here. Why prattle on about a being? Why talk on about a being, in quotes? Mara, you are just lost in wrong view. This is just a tangle of conditions. Here a being is not to be found. Just as the word chariot designates an arrangement of parts, so when there are the aggregates, there occurs the concept being. 
It is nothing but suffering arising, nothing but suffering which ceases. Then Mara the evil one thought, this nun Vajra knows me, and depressed in suffering he vanished from that very spot. <laughs> so this image of the chariot is a very famous one in Buddhist text because it just suggests, yes, we do create a concept and there's a use, useful function for that concept, yeah, a chariot, designates this collection of parts in a certain arrangement. But there's nothing in itself which is the chariot other than the collection and relationship of parts. In exactly the same way, what we call self, what we call I, is the relationship of the aggregates. It is a concept just like chariot. There's nothing in itself which exists as I or mine. Okay, so I would like to close this with one other sutta, Discourse of the Buddha, in which using this format of understanding the aggregates in this most amazing way deconstructs the whole notion of self. So, let's see. The story of a monk named Anuradha. And as was common in those days, the monks were wandering around. There were a lot of other wandering ascetics. And they really questioned it. It was a very lively spiritual time. They were always debating and questioning. So one of these other ascetics questioned Anuradha. And they said, Does the Buddha exist after death or not? Does he both exist and not exist? Which, this is a common Indian philo philosophical thing. No. Does he exist after death or not? Does he both exist and not exist? Does he neither exist or not exist? Okay, it covers the whole, <laughs> the whole gamut of possibility here, almost. So Anuradha said to these other guys, the Buddha is spoken of in ways other than this. So then these other ascetics, they just laughed at Anuradha. And they said, you must either be a novice or a great fool. You don't know. So Anuradha thought to himself, how can I have better expressed what is really true? So he went to the Buddha and he told him of this interchange. And then the Buddha asked him a series of questions. They said, just imagine now that it's the Buddha asking us these questions. Okay, this is not about anurata. This is to us, about us. So really listen in this way, because this is how the Buddha taught. Okay, these questions are not hard either. But also, let them in. Right? So you really are, are feeling them and responding from an experiential place. Okay, the first question the Buddha asks, and is asking us, is the body permanent or impermanent? Anuradha answered, impermanent, O Lord. Are feelings, perceptions, mental tendencies, consciousness, permanent or impermanent? impermanence are. Is what is impermanent satisfying or unsatisfying? Is it reliable or unreliable? That which has the nature to constantly change. Unsatisfying, sir, unreliable. Next question. Is what is impermanent unsatisfying, unreliable of the nature to change, is it proper to regard that as this is mine, this is myself, this is I? Does it make any sense to claim this changing phenomena 
as I or self when it's changing in every moment. Is what is impermanent, unsatisfying, what is of the nature to change, is it proper to regard this as this is mine, this is myself, this is I? No, Bhante. Bhante is a term of respect. Okay, now listen carefully because this is where it all happens. Now, Anurada, do you regard that Tathagata is the word, the name the Buddha used to refer to himself? So do you regard the Tathagata's body, do you regard his body as being the Tathagata? Or do you regard the Buddha's body as being the Buddha? Surely not. Do you regard the Tathagata's feelings, perceptions, tendencies, consciousness as being the Buddha? Remember, these are all these momentary changing aggregates. Are any one of those the Buddha? No, sir. Do you regard the Buddha as being something apart from these? The Buddha somehow different than the aggregates? No, sir. Do you regard the Buddha as having no body, no feelings, no perceptions, no tendencies, no consciousness? Surely not, Bhante. Okay. Then since in just this life, the Tathagata is not to be met with, in reality is not to be found, is it proper to say of him he can be spoken of in some way after death? When we look carefully, is the Tathagata, is the Buddha, is ourself? Is it the changing body? Is it the changing impermanent feelings, perceptions, tendencies, consciousness? It doesn't make sense to call that which is changing in every moment self. It's gone before we can even claim it. So the body is not self, feelings are not self, perceptions are not self, tendencies are not self, consciousness is not self. Is self something apart from these? Is, this, is there some self out there which is not the aggregates? No. Is the self something which doesn't have a body, doesn't have feelings? No. When we look carefully, when we analyze in this way, we see that the Tathagata, the Buddha, the self, is not to be found, is not to be met with. question of whether the Buddha, whether we exist after death or not, loses all relevance. Well said, Anuradha. <laughs> Both formally and now, it is only this that I teach. What suffering is and what is its end? Suffering, when these aggregates are clung to, as being I or mine. The end of suffering, when the mind is released from the grip of that attachment or identification. This is our practice moment to moment. Our practice is not about some methodology and it's not about going from here to there. It's about the release of the mind. In each moment that we're attentive, that we're aware, released from the grip of identification with the experience, free from the illusion, free from the concept of self, of I. The mind free of grasping is the experience of selflessness because we are no longer creating it as a concept, as a construct. It is just the mind released. This is really the practice of freedom, moment to moment, not as a goal. I'd just like to close with 
very short couplet, Chinese poem from Li Po. And it sums it all up in two lines. He says, we sit alone, the mountain and me, until only the mountain remains. Let's sit for a couple of minutes. The breath in me, the sensations in me, thoughts in me, until only the breath remains. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.